How are you guys this morning? Oh, come on now. Really? Seriously? All right. I, for some reason, y'all are going to get something a little different this morning. I don't know what it is. I, I was doing my quiet time this morning and um, just spending some time in the Word. And uh, one of the difficulties a pastor has sometimes is when they're spending time in the Word, uh, oftentimes it's in preparation for this instead of connection here. And uh, I try really hard to work on this connection to be actually what I need to be for this connection. And, but this, so this morning I'm praying and I'm spending time in the Word and it dawned on me, as a, it, it's just a little subtle thing, but it dawned on me that inside my quiet time I was actually preparing for you more than I was actually just preparing or working on this relationship. And so I had to stop. And the Lord just whispered in my ear and said, you know, Anthony, because that's what he calls me. And he said, you know what, Anthony? He goes... I just want your heart. I just want you. You know, we're going to be looking at um, more of the story of Christmas. And I knew I was excited about doing this months ago. Um, but I'm, I'm more excited about it now than ever. And, I, and I'll explain why. Yeah, for, for so many of us, the story of Christmas has actually become a tale. Uh, and those are, I promise you, that's not me. Um, it's become a tale. And that's unfortunate because tales lose their meaning. They become cliche. They become fanciful and imaginary. Tales told long enough become legends and blown out of proportion and not seen for what it actually was. When in fact, what this is, is a story. And it's not just a story, it's many stories woven together. And so my greatest desire as I read through the scriptures, and Luke in particular, is that we, as God has woven these stories, that we join him in the weaving, that we see each thread for what it is. And not only see the uniqueness and the, just the wonder that is each particular person and what it is that God has called them to and used them for allowed them to be a part of but also what do we what do we garner from it what do we see there isn't a word in the scriptures that isn't written with with an, an expressed affection for both first himself god himself and then for his children who read it and so there's not a wasted word not a wasted syllable not a wasted space not a wasted punctuation everything is here for us to be able to get a glimpse into this God of wonder that we just sang of. So, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go to Luke chapter two, if I may. Luke chapter two. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna skim a little bit of the, the first story read, which was of the person, or the people, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then we're just gonna read the story and we're gonna see where God takes us this morning. But I think there are some wonderful things in this context that we can Grow from, grow from, be, be transformed by, be, to marvel. And that's, that's my hope today. So Lord, let me, let me now pray and we'll, we'll just, um, we'll enter in. Father, we thank you for your word and pray, Jesus, that as you have written this out by your spirit, that we realize that this is you saying I love you to us. You revealing your own heart to us and your expression of affection and care, and your glory as well as your mercy and grace. And may we be overwhelmed. May we stand in wonder 
that the God of creation, the God who has both spoken all of this into existence and holds it together knows each one of us and speaks, speaks by name to us. So may we be moved as a body and as individuals. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You guys ready? Are we? I feel very living room-like today, so, you know, if I belch, it's because I feel like I'm at home. Okay, so here we go. You ready? You ever feel like you're just in the living room? I think we're supposed to be family today, so we're being family today, so here we go. It says, in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to, the priestly, to, to this historical priestly division. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God. Now I'm gonna stop there for a minute and I wanna go back to what I said earlier about my own preparation for this morning. You know, the fact of the matter is we see this story begin. We looked at this last week and we're looking at Zechariah the priest and that's where we begin, right in here, not his priesthood and his being descended from Aaron and this is a great honor that he would be descended right from the brother of Moses, the, the priest that would serve Israel through the wilderness. These are descendants of Aaron. This is, as a Jew is reading this, they're going, this is fantastic. These people are of great heritage. And we, if we stop right here, we can become disconnected already because we, don't, we can't relate to that. We, we can't, you know, we don't think of ourselves as priests going into a tabernacle and, and this idea of being in line with Aaron and the royal, really the royal heritage that, that both Zechariah and Elizabeth share. What I love about this is this. God takes us from this kind of theological, historical lineage to show us who these, this man and woman was, but then take, does something really beautiful with it. Look what it says. It says, in the, in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He and his wife both were descendants of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God. So, the, so we see this priest and his wife, they're upright in the sight of God, and we think, okay, yeah, well, he's a priest. God thinks he's okay, he's got connections. But what's it go on to say? It says, both of them were upright in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, not perfectly, not sinlessly, but blamelessly, with great sincerity and devotion. But they had, now look, all of a sudden, look what happens next. But they had what? But they had no children. We go from this kind of lineage and this heritage to this, this theological position that he holds and being a descendant of Aaron and all this greatness in regard to his, his Israeliteness. Then all of a sudden, it's, and, then, and then the idea, the description of God that, he's, that these two are righteous and they're blameless and they're upright. And at first we're like, Phew. but then he said something very interesting. He said they had no children. You know what I love about this? God certainly sets the table, but then he says, you know what, these were people. This was a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. They were just people, just like us. This is a really important moment. I think very often when we think of church or we think of when we read titles and we see positions and we see lineage and heritage and we think, well, that's them, and here's me. And what I love about this is God is certainly establishing them in regard to who they are, but then what he's doing is he's ripping open the veil and he's saying, look in at the hearts of these two human beings, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And the reason I go back to what I was doing this morning is, you know, this, certainly I'm a pastor and I want to be a good pastor, but you know what, the only thing that can make me a good pastor, the only thing, the only thing is not my preparation for you. 
It's my relationship with my father. I want to stop here for a minute. I think the reason he went where he did when he began to describe them as priests and descendants of Aaron and their righteousness and they followed the commands blamelessly and we're going, all right, I can't relate to that. You know what I think he wanted us to see? But that's not the point. And it doesn't matter how great a priest you are if you're not a great man. You're not really a great priest. See, what, I, what dawns on me in the morning when I'm doing my quiet time and I catch myself preparing to speak as opposed to just meeting with my Jesus, I'm, I, 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 it dawns on me that the only way for me to even be a decent pastor is for me to be a godly man. For me to have a right relationship with my father and to stand before him sincerely and offer him my heart, not to be a better pastor, but just to be a good, just to be a good and gentle man. And in order for that to, you know, once that occurs, that translates then into my being first a husband and how I love my wife. And we'll see that in a moment. And then a father and how I love my children. And we'll see that in a moment. And then the expression of those relationships all then ought to flow to, frankly, each other. So the challenge already before us is this, is that although we are priests, made priests by God, and we replaced Zechariah, and we're going to talk about that in a second, the fact of the matter is, is the quality of our lives in regard to how we display Jesus has nothing to do with our preparation for those relationships. It's just merely having this relationship in tow. And that's exactly what Zechariah was being lauded for. It wasn't that he was a great priest. How do I know that? Let's go. Let's, and we're not going to stick here very long. We're going to move forward. But we need to set this table because there's a beautiful contrast we're going to see in a moment. Ready? Here we go. So in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He and his wife were both descendants of Aaron. Verse 6, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. And so now their lives begin to unveil, be unveiled in front of us. Once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. So he, now he's performing his duty. He's functioning as God had ordained him to function within the official confines of his title as priest. So take that all into account for a moment. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. So this is kind of his job at this point, right? He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, to bring the, the wonderful fragrance before God and worship for the sake of, for, for on behalf of his fellow Israelites. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was gripped with fear. And, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, you're what? You are an awesome priest. Is that what it says? You are just fantastic in offering this incense. You, ah, you got it mixed perfectly today. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? It says, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. The beauty of Zechariah is that his priesthood flowed from his daily walk with Jesus, or with his Father in heaven at this point, because Jesus is yet to come. The, the expression of Zechariah's heart and sincerity in regard to his blamelessness had as much to do with his devotion to his Father as it did with his expression as a priest. And wedged in between this, was the conduit of his love for his wife and his family. 
See, if we miss out on this, then we don't, it becomes difficult for us to actually walk in Christ the way we're designed to and the way God has ordained it. Because I'm first and foremost his child and not until I exercise this father-son, father-daughter relationship do I then enter into what it is to be a husband or a son or a father or a friend or a pastor or a priest. See, and this is what we need to begin to draw from this. This is how we can begin to say, look at this and go, oh, oh, well shoot, right? So we go on. So, so verse 11 says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel of the Lord said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your devotion. I know your heart. I've heard these prayers. Here. Here. And you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. You need to set him apart for ministry. Verse 16, many people of Israel, will, he will bring back, back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Zechariah, this thing just keeps building up and welling up, and he's overwhelmed more and more by every statement that the angel makes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Your son will do this. The Lord has heard your prayer. You have been blameless before him. Not perfect, not sinless, but sincere and upright. Just like we can be. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm, I'm an old man and my wife is a long years. And the angel answered, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And he sent me here to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day it happens because you did not believe my words. Zechariah, dude. Hey, you did not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he had kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. And here's what's really neat about this. Listen. God begins to magnify even more his own humanity, or excuse me, Zechariah's humanity and the people that Zechariah and Elizabeth were. Look what it says next. When his time of service was completed, he returned home, and after this, his wife became what? Became what? Pregnant. Pregnant became pregnant in their older years. As long as they had been married, she was thought to have been barren and there was no fruit as they understood it in their family. And because of this, they were, seen, they were humiliated and seen as a disgrace. Because of this, her inability to conceive, she was seen as less than in the confines of the culture despite what God would have said about her. But you know what's neat about this? The reality of a husband who has seen a vision, who has come home and who has embraced his wife 
and that the two of them together would, would practice intimacy that would enable them to conceive. And this is an expression of their humanity and the reality of who they were and their love for one another. And this is necessary for us to see. You know why? Because God wrote it. He put it there. And he wants us to know this. See, here's the reason I think it's there. Her disgrace was because she couldn't conceive. God's whole point is a day to me is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So what's 80 years in his economy? The fact of the matter was is he had set a time for this family to, to, to be able to develop their righteousness and their character and to show their faithfulness and to, be, to have a reputation in the community, to be known by all around them, for them to not only be a great priest and his wife, but to be a godly man and a godly woman and a godly marriage who remained steadfast and faithful despite the fact that they could not conceive. And now if we're not careful, we have singles in the room and we have widows in the room and we have widowers in the room and we have people who have children and people who haven't had children and you're thinking, well, uh, but uh, what does this have to do? Stop. Conception is not merely for the sake of children. But God conceives ideas and dreams. And God conceives visions and signs and wonders. And God conceives in each one of us what it is that we will become. And there are times in our lives when we feel barren and we feel like life is going on without us and we're not sure what our purpose is or what God's will for our lives might be or will I ever, will this, no, stop. In his time, he will conceive or allow us to conceive that which he has caused us to birth. And it is not always a child. It's not. And unfortunately, if we relegate this sentence to only a child, then we lose sight of all the beautiful births of ministry and service and mission and friendship. That are birthed through each one of us daily by the hand of our God. Some of us may never even marry, let alone have children, and that's a wonderful gift. And some of us may get married and never have children, and that's a wonderful gift. And some of us may marry and have children, and we thought it was a gift until they turned 17. <laughs> and it got worse when they turned 25. And if you're a little older, you understand what I'm saying. And if you're younger, I'm sticking my tongue out at you. Hmm. Because this passage is for every one of us who walk with him. And there are those who are ordained to be eunuchs who will spend the rest of their lives serving God and the church and never have children of their own. But what he has conceived in them is the church and their service to the church. This is a beautiful thing here and now that our God does do the miraculous through the lives of the, oh, those of us who sometimes feel barren and sometimes are shamed or feeling humiliated because the culture perceives us in a certain way when in fact the Lord has ordained that when it is time, he will conceive and birth through us his will, his purposes, and accomplish his deeds. Does that make sense this morning? This season is an opportunity 
for those things to be conceived and birthed through us as we bring forward, looking back at Jesus having been born, looking forward to what's to come, we can bring with us the hope and the joy of what it is that he has done. So we read on. You ready? We're not done yet. We are not done yet. Okay, so here we go. When, this time, when his time of service was completed, he returned home after, and after this, his wife became pregnant and for five months remained. In, she was so overwhelmed, she didn't know what to do with herself. She remained in seclusion. She wouldn't go out. The Lord has done this for me, she cried out. The Lord has done this for me. What has he done? She said, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. He has taken away my barrenness. He has taken away that thing which was humiliating for me. He has taken away the jides of the people around and the pity. But I would say, again, this is not merely for the woman who conceives late in life. This is for the one who thinks they're barren and the Lord would conceive anything through them and birth anything through them. And to be encouraged that he knows and he cares. Amen? Amen. Can we go on? Now, it says in verse 26, it says in the sixth month. Now, what he means by this is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, okay? And we'll see that verified here in a moment. But it says in the sixth month, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Now, Gabriel is a guy who keeps just flying all over the place. I've been told he flew southwest, and I'll tell you why. It is by far the best airline. I'm not paid to endorse them, but I'm just telling you, I won't fly anything else unless I absolutely have to. <laughs> I'm sorry. He was getting frequent flyer miles, and uh, he, this trip to see Mary was free of charge. So here we go. It says, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in the town of Galilee to a what? To a what? Virgin. Now, tradition, and I want to be careful because we're not sh- for sure, but tradition states that, they, that many scholars believe that Mary was between the ages of 14 and 18 or 19 when this would have occurred. This is a young lady. A young lady who had never known a man. No, stop for a moment. Let's roll back. How old was Elizabeth? Older. Could have been in her 70s or 80s, actually. Now, all this being said, this is what I want us to understand. As I look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know what I see? I see God's old way. Much like he did in the life of Sarah, who was barren until later in years, although promised to have a child. He waited until she was well past childbearing years to allow her to have that child. And she and Abraham conceived, and they had a child. He was seen doing that from time to time throughout the Old Testament. He did the same thing for Elizabeth. So in this, we see God functioning or acting as he did during the time of the Israelites. Zechariah was a priest who was upright who conducted himself both as a man and as a priest in a way that God had seen fit for the priest to act. You know what was coming to an end? The priesthood, as they understood it. Do you know why? Well, because the temple worship was coming to an end. Do you know why? Because Jesus would come. The one to whom you would go in to see in the Holy of Holies was now going to be birthed through a woman and walk in the flesh and then, come, and then be raised from the dead so that, and open the way for us to go straight into the Holy Holies without the need of a priest or a temple. But in fact, God would blow out the door and invite us in. John, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, 
would be the end of the prophets as we knew them. The last of the Old Testament prophets who would come and declare the way of God. Why? Well, because Jesus would now fulfill all the prophets, the law, and be the living word, expressing the very mercy and grace and love of our Father. Not through the mouth of a prophet. Not by the hand of the prophet. Not to be worshipped merely alone in a tabernacle made of stone by a priest. But in fact, now residing in a new temple, in a new tabernacle, in the hearts of his people, with free access to him as priests. See, what was happening here is this. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and, and John were not only paving the way for Jesus, but they were closing the door, or closing the last chapter of God's movement in the Old Testament. And the new chapter was beginning, and it was written, first and foremost, frankly, to Mary. And Mary, being young, now you know what had never happened in the Old Testament? That a virgin would conceive. This is new. Mary wasn't wading through life barren and wondering and waiting. You know what she was? She was a young lady who had given her life sincerely and blamelessly to her father and said, you use my body as you see fit. You use this vessel as you see fit. I will, in view of your mercy and what you have been to Israel throughout my people's heritage, in view of that mercy, I know I'll offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. And this will be my spiritual act of worship. See, this is more than just a tale, and it's more than just a couple stories tied together. This is God unveiling his plan. This is God accomplishing his purposes as well. This was God closing one chapter and opening a new one. And this is beautiful. Verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And we just heard Brad speak of and read scripture that speaks of, you know, first the, the, the covenant with Abraham, which was circumcision, and then the covenant with Moses, which was the law, and our need to, to, to uh, uh, reciprocate back and forth with God things that were required of us. But in David, he offered this, he offered grace, and he said, on the throne which I am establishing under you, the Messiah will come, and he will reign, bless you, he will reign eternally, on this throne. And this is, to, this is what they speak to now. Look what it says. It says, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named John, Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are what? You who are highly favored. The Lord has seen you, and the Lord knows you, and the Lord has placed his hand of favor on you, and he is now with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But, he, but the angel said, said to her, what? Do not be afraid. This is like the typical response for all angels. This is the standard phrase. Whenever he sh when an angel shows up, everyone gets afraid, and what do they say? Ah, don't be afraid. It's okay. It's all right. I'm so-and-so. Gabriel. So here's Mary, a young lady who's pledged to be married. 
In that pledging, he has remained chaste in that relationship. She and Joseph have not known each other in that way. An angel of the Lord shows up and says, you are highly favored. And Mary's, I want to make a contrast here again. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with the Lord. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never come to an end. Can you imagine being a teenage girl and having an angel speak to you and all this just mounting information that just keeps coming at you and how overwhelming this must have been? Look at Mary's response in verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin... Stop. Now, Zechariah got himself in trouble. We just read it. What did Zechariah say? The angel, he said, the, he walked in. There's the angel to his right. He's startled. The angel says, dude, you're going to have a kid. He goes, uh, how? And what, if, what was the angel's response? Do you remember? Shut up. <laughs> just shut up. And from now on, you ain't talking. Not until this thing's done. No, you didn't believe me. You doubted. I told you I was with God. He said to say this. You didn't believe me. Shut your mouth. That's what he did. Look at this. Feminist. That's what it is. <laughs> I'm being facetious. Okay, so here we go. Let's look, watch. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Go down to verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? Stop. Mary wasn't doubting. You know what Mary was doing? Displaying her righteousness. I've not known a man and I will not know a man. How can this be? My husband is a righteous man and we have committed to not consummating our marriage until it's time. So how can this be? See, Mary, the angel, let's look at, well, how did the angel respond? Is it shut up? How will this be, Mary asked. The angel said, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even, your, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary, don't worry. It's okay. We are not going to ask you to compromise your righteousness or to compromise your purity, to compromise your commitment, your character. Your husband will not be asked to compromise his commitment to you. But in fact, the Lord, because... He has favor. Because of his grace and his mercy, because of his power, he will actually protect you. And this one conceived in you will be by God. And you will be called blessed. See, I love Mary's response. It wasn't doubt. It was surrender. But it was also righteous. I want us to dwell on that for a moment. I was asked recently by a young man, do I have an age limit on elders? And I said, mm, yeah, no. I said, you know, so what I look for is a certain level of maturity and 
experience and reputation based on those two things and faithfulness and I want to see it displayed over time and tested. He was about 30. I wondered why he asked the question. But this is what I will say. You know what's awesome? Zechariah was an elder. Mary wasn't. And so it's not to discount how God uses the young. Those who in their early years would devote themselves to loving God and offer him themselves for his service and to live a life that is sincere and blameless and to be usable in his hands. I don't care if you're nine. Right? This is the beauty of our God and who he'll use and when he'll use them and how he'll go about that use and the grace that he bestows on those he uses and the power that he displays through them. And this is the miracle of this story and the things that we can learn and we can derive from this by not just reading the tale or letting it develop into legend, but really seeing the humanity in these people and the glory of our God and his power and his desire to do the impossible in us and through us and to conceive things in us when we sense barrenness and we wonder why. And yet he says, no, no, no. With man, this might be impossible. With me, all things are possible. Does this make sense this morning? So we read on. It says that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. And I don't know that Mary could grasp all of this because later in Luke we see that she's pondering things and she's wondering what these things mean and I don't think she, you know, I don't think any of us could fully grasp this scope of what it is that God is doing here. What verse did I leave off on? What one? Thank you. How will this be, Mary asked, and the angel said, since I, since, and she asked the angel, she said, since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be the son of, called the Son of God. Stop for a minute. You know, there's a problem. There's another piece of scripture that we need to look at. And I want to go back to, to Mary's response to the angel. How could this be? And why she was not rebuked the way Zechariah was rebuked. And what gives me a clue that what he was actually doing was honoring her righteousness and Joseph's righteousness. And not, this was not a spirit of doubt. Go to Matthew chapter 1 with me if you would. Matthew chapter 1. You ready? We're going to go to verse 18. Men in the room, please listen closely. Men in the room, watch this closely. You ready? Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now we need to understand something that in this day, the engagement in essence, this pledging was, legal, was a legal agreement. And in order for it to be broken, a divorce had to occur. Even if they had not consummated the relationship, if for some reason one backed out of the relationship for any reason, they had to issue a writ of divorce. And so they, these two were legally bound, but they were not officially bound in the sense that they had not consummated the relationship and they were waiting for that time, okay? We know that by what's being said next. Here we go, you ready? 
So it says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they had sex, before they consummated the relationship, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now here's where the problem arises. Mary, as we see in Luke, was told that this was going to happen. Is my microphone still on? Okay, you ever feel like your just microphone just fell off? Oh, you probably not. Okay, so here we go. Here, here, here we, we, see, we just read in Luke that the angel came and spoke to Mary. You know what they didn't do? They didn't talk to John, or Joseph, excuse me. They forgot to talk to Joseph. And then God was going, Gabriel, I told you to do both. Oh, I got, my frequent flyer miles ran out and I couldn't get over to... That siren is to tell me that was the poorest time to tell a joke I've ever told a joke. Okay, so here we go, ready? Look what it says. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now he notes that it's the Holy Spirit, but nobody told Joseph it was the Holy Spirit. Look what it says next. Because Joseph, was her, hus- jo- Joseph her husband, was a righteous man. Was a what? Was a righteous man. And did not want to what? Expose her or disgrace her or humiliate her. In public, he had in mind to do what? To divorce her quietly. What happened? Joseph didn't know the origin of the conception, and his assumption was that she had had sex with someone other than him prior to being married. In the law, it was written that she was to be publicly presented and possibly stoned to death. And that he was to give her a writ of divorce and to send her away. But because of his righteousness, he, listen, he showed mercy. Now, this is really important that he uses the word righteous here. Because what what gospel are we reading this time? We're reading what? Matthew. You know who Matthew was? He was a Jewish tax collector to become a disciple. And in writing the the Gospel of Matthew, this was a Jew writing to Jews about Jewish things to try to show them that Jesus was the Messiah. And that what they understood as righteousness is not what God meant as righteousness. And so when it says that Joseph was a righteous man, the first thing a Jew would think is, well, did he divorce her and was it public? And did he make sure that she was publicly uh, um, uh, castigated for this? (laughs) No. You know what this is? This is true righteousness. This is righteousness of heart. This is rightness with the Father. This is one who now was seen with favor to be the Father of the Most High God. Now I want us to stop here for a minute because this is what's so wonderful about this. I assume that God knew what was going on, that he wasn't surprised by any of this, and that he, having impregnated Mary prior to Joseph having had relations with her and not telling Joseph about it was actually part of the plan. Because do you know what got to, we get to see based on all that information? We got to see Joseph's righteousness displayed. He didn't have to show us this, men. He did not have to show us how gracious and merciful this man was. He did not have to show us that this righteousness was a rightness between him and his father and that he would express himself in such a way as to dignify this woman when everything else would say no. Now, I don't know that God did this for the purpose of testing Joseph, but what it was was for the purpose of allowing it to be displayed, and it did test Joseph, and you know what he did? He passed the test. 
His love and his affection and his mercy and his grace and his righteousness all come shining through. Because we need to put ourselves in Joseph's position for a minute. He was engaged. He had remained pure. His wife-to-be was a virgin, and now she's pregnant, and he doesn't know who did it. What does that look like? What must have that done in the heart and the soul of Joseph? And yet he relents and shows mercy. Now, why do I want to talk to us as people? Get this, right? God, I have four children. I like them, okay? Two girls, two boys. They're married to two boys and two girls. I have four grandchildren, two boys and two girls. I like them all. You know what God isn't surprised about in any of that? That I'm their dad. Not a bit. In fact, you know what he's done? If I have been created to do good works prepared in advance for me to do, that I've been, he's creating me to do those works. He's also created the works for me to do and me to do the works. And then he has providentially brought me together perfectly, knowing full well who I am and who those he would bring into my life would be. And so I have the privilege of raising with my wife four children and four in-law children and four grandchildren. And God has made me specifically for this purpose to fit beautifully into their lives which the only way I can do it well is to be righteous and blameless with my father. Not a great dad, not a great grandfather, but a godly man that makes me a decent husband, a decent father, and a decent grandfather. Now, why do I bring that up? Anybody ever read the story about the adulterous woman? John chapter 8, you can read it when you get home. I'll give you a brief overview. As the band gets in place, band, get in place. Oh, I covered the mic, get in place. Okay, so here we go. Listen, John chapter 8, it says that Jesus went to the temple, and while he was teaching, that the Pharisees had brought in a woman caught in what? Adultery. And they kept pounding Jesus about what had happened and what the penalty for this woman should be, that she should be stoned. And it says that Jesus stooped down and he began to write on the ground. And when he stood up, he looked around and he said, okay, here's the deal. Guys, listen, anyone here who has no sin, you throw the first stone. It says that he stooped down again and he began to write on the ground. And it says that those men began to leave one at a time. The, listen, the oldest ones first. And when he stood up again, only the woman was standing there. And he said, uh, where are those who condemn you? And she said, well, no one, sir, condemns me. And well, this is what he said. Neither, listen, listen, neither do I condemn you. Go leave your life of sin. You know what I can imagine? Knowing that Jesus in Luke chapter 2 is described as one who had disobeyed his parents by staying at the temple, was placed under their authority and had to become obedient to them, and then grew, grew, now he didn't sin, but he then grew in wisdom, stature, and reputation among men. Do you know what I begin to wonder? Is when he's standing in front of those Pharisees and he stoops down on the ground and he's thinking and praying about how he should respond, that I wonder if what he thought was his dad who didn't send his mom away that Joseph had been prepared to father Jesus. And God allowed Joseph's righteousness to be tested to prove that he loved this woman and would love her rightly. 
and that Jesus learned from his dad how to treat a woman because he watched Joseph and heard the stories about his own birth. And I'm sure by the other Jews was reminded of his own birth and not kindly. See, this is the lesson we get to learn as we not just look at the tale of Christmas, but as we read the story as God wrote it through the people that he worked and that we can learn with them and walk with them and and grow in wisdom and righteousness and character. And will we bring this kind of grace to our family in the next two weeks? As we shop and as we eat and as we hang with people, is this the kind of love and righteousness we will bring to every endeavor we find ourselves? Because that is what Zechariah did and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph in preparation for the Lord and his coming. And they were all favored by God, not because they were priests or in the line of David or the line of Aaron, but because they were right with their father. And they remained steadfast and blameless. And this is why when I do my quiet time, it can't be for this. It has to be for this. And that this would come out of this. And it should be true for all of us. Amen.